<clears throat> ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What's so important about the church ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper? Why is it so important that we observe those, and why is it so important that we observe them rightly? Um, the church ordinances are the visible marks of what a community of believers is. And so it's, I think it's critically important that we not only observe them, but we observe them according to the Scriptures. One of the problems of um, our churches today, that is churches who believe in being saved by, by uh, grace through faith alone, maybe not all Baptists, but churches that have that same belief with regard to salvation. One of the problems in these kinds of churches, and perhaps in some of our Baptist churches, is that some churches have just become too attraction-focused, and so they'll do anything to draw a crowd so that once people... Uh, will come, then then at that point they can hear the gospel. So if we can just get as many people into the doors, that's the main thing. And as a result, um, the boundary lines between who's in and who's out is very blurred, and so it's hard for the community to see who the real believers are. On the other hand, some churches believe that, that because they preach the word correctly, they've done all, all these things, then then maybe through their legalistic impulses that, that their community has lost its vibrancy that we see in the Scriptures so that the community doesn't really care. So we kind of just have the us for no more mentality and we don't really care about the community around us and what they see. And, and so there's an important connection that we need to make between hearing God's Word and, and the community being able to see what's going on. And I think one of the best ways for our community to see what the church is about is through the ordinances. The ordinances are the gospel made visible. What does the gospel look like? What does it take to get in? Okay, what does it, it take to get inside the church? And what does it take to remain inside the church? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And really, that's what the Reformation was about. We, we often think about the Reformation being by, about justification by faith alone, and that's true. Um, but, but really, it was about a debate over the ordinances. What did the ordinances really do? What are the ordinances? And what did they really do? What kind of implications do they have for our church? And um, so I hope by the end of the class that we'll have a better understanding of why people were willing to die over these truths uh, about baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right, let me uh, pray, and then we'll start with introductory definitions. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the access that we have to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that we would boldly come before your throne <coughs> and that <coughs> that you would accept us, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of his blood. And Lord, may we um, treat you as our creator and as our father, one who, who owns us and one who loves us and May you help us to understand now uh, more clearly, be reminded about some things we already know with regard to baptism and the Lord's Supper, and think about some implications of how it affects our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin with um, a definition, or really this is from our statement of faith. 
says, Christian baptism, there on your handout, Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the authority of the local church to show forth in a beautiful and solemn emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to newness of life. So what you'll notice in there is that um, baptism isn't what saves us, right? Did you see that in the fourth line there? A beautiful and solemn emblem or memorial, right? A, a picture. It's not, the, it's not the actual thing that saves us. It's not the essence of our faith, right? A person doesn't need to be baptized in order to be saved. It's simply a picture of our faith. That's what we're saying in our statement of faith that was written over 75 years ago. Now would someone read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. So Paul here is showing the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's saying here, as we come under the, the authority of Christ in the New Testament, and the, under the authority of Jesus, then what we're supposed to do in baptism is to follow Him in that. We, we identify ourselves with Him through His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what the picture is, right? We are buried with Him in the likeness of His death and we're raised in the likeness of His resurrection. <coughs> our baptism pictures our identification with Jesus. And then our statement of faith goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper. It says that it, baptism, is a prerequisite to a church relationship and to the Lord's Supper in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of the bread and cup, are to commemorate the dying love of Christ preceded always by a solemn self-examination. So, in order for us to be able to take the Lord's Supper, in order for us to join into membership with this church, then we require that a person is both saved and baptized. Okay? So, they need to actually identify themselves as Jesus' followers through baptism. And then, this Lord's Supper is only to be taken by members of our church or churches like ours. And notice in the, the second to last line there, the purpose of it is to commemorate. Again, that's the idea, the beautiful and solemn emblem we saw for baptism. The Lord's Supper is very similar, right? It's, it's a commemorate. It's a memorial. It's a picture. It's not, it doesn't cause us to actually take part in God's grace as if we're, we're, um, this is the only way we can be saved or something. This is something that reminds us of the dying love of Christ, as it says there. Now, we call it, <coughs> we call it a number of things. Uh, I, I most often refer to it as the Lord's Supper, but it's completely appropriate to call it communion as well. Communion is a word that comes from the Latin word, communion. I don't know, that sounds kind of Spanish. But, but anyway, the idea is sharing, sharing in common um, because of our sharing with Christ and with each other. And so the idea of communion is, obviously, you, you can think of that in other contexts, that it's a sharing. Others have called it Eucharist. Perhaps you grew up in a Catholic background, you, you know what that is. It's, it's not a bad word, really, for, for the Lord's Supper. It's just a Greek word that, that means thanksgiving. Because Jesus, after he had broken the bread, he gave thanks. He Eucharisted, effectively, right? So um, that's, that's the where they get that word from. 
Uh, some Christians call it simply the breaking of bread, which comes directly from the scriptures, Acts 2, right? That, that when, they were, when they believed, they were baptized and added to the church and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to breaking of bread, right? So that's, that's the idea there. So those, all those terms are appropriate. I don't use the word Eucharist um, when I refer to it because of the connotations it has with, with the Roman Catholics but, and because of their abuse, really, of the, the ordinance there. Um, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Notice at the end of our statement of faith there for Lord's Supper, it says, preceded always by a solemn self-examination. That's based on 1 Corinthians 11:28. if you want to write that down. 1 Corinthians 11:28. This is actually it's at the top of your handout. What's that? Okay, you don't have to write down. Uh, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So there's an expectation that Paul had that some of you people are coming in here not prepared. You're you're not concerned about the the body as a whole. It's not um, the self-examination here. I I don't think is Paul saying you individually. Um, have to ha- have to have your heart with r- right with God. Don't worry about anybody else. I think the idea is you need to have your heart right with God by having your heart right with other people. All right? If you have an offense to, with someone, go go settle that. Um, in fact, it's better to to get up from your worship, go settle that, than to than to to hold that grudge and and take part in the Lord's Supper unworthily. So that's kind of the introduction of the ordinances. We're going to look at both of them individually here in just a second, but let me give you a little bit more um, of some background on on these. Ever since the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, there's basically a group of conservative um, people that were commissioned by the government at that time in England um, to to decide what were going to, to be the worship practices within the church. And so that's why we, we often um, have some great statements of faith and great statements of practice, really, uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, that was primarily designed for the Anglican Church and then borrowed by like the Presbyterians and, and other churches like them that had similar practices, infant baptism and things like that. But then later on in the, I think it was in the 1700s, you had the second or the the Baptist Confe- the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And what they did is they borrowed a lot from the Westminster Confession of Faith and wrote down a lot of these same kinds of, of practices. But but what the Westminster when they looked at the ordinances, they saw the ordinances as a, as a sign and a seal. The the ordinances are signs in that they are an outward indication of an inward reality. Right? They're not the essence of the, the saving faith. Right, They're just a picture of it. So they're an outward expression of what we believe inside. So here's what the Westminster Confession says. It says, There is in every sacrament or ordinance a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. And so what he's saying is there is a... They are not the same thing. Okay, salvation and baptism, salvation and the Lord's Supper are not the same thing, but they are necessarily linked. Okay, so that's why Peter says in Acts 2 a surprising command to the people there. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And it sounds to us like he's calling for baptismal regeneration, but instead what he's doing 
is he's actually saying it's not baptism that saves, but that baptism is so necessarily or closely linked to salvation that a person who is saved must be baptized. It's, it's the first step of obedience that a believer ought to take. And we'll talk about that here in a second. So that's a sign. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. If the person is saved, if I am saved, then I should, I should express that or identify myself with Christ in baptism. And then, secondly, the Westminster Confession called it a seal, that these ordinances are a seal. They, they verify the promises that God has given us in the gospel. Uh, here's what John Calvin says on your handout there. The sacraments br- bring the clearest promises, and they have this characteristic over and above, <coughs> excuse me, over and above the word because they represent them for us as, a paint, as painted in a picture from life. So they, they are an expression that paints for us what is an inward reality. So the Westminster Confession there, your next, the next part of your handout, has four purposes for the ordinances. First, they represent Christ and His benefit to us. And as Calvin just reminded us, they do that in a, a uniquely visual and physical way. So if we want to, to see what it is to have this connection, an outward expression of that is, is in the, the um, expression, the outward expression of that is the ordinances. It's participating in those ordinances. Secondly, they confirm our interest in Him. They remind us that, that Christ has indeed died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. And so it's not enough for us to just make, <coughs> to make an internal decision by saying, hey, I, I decided to follow Jesus, but then never connect ourselves to a local church. Because then we're, we're, we're buying into this false idea that, that it's okay to be like a Lone Ranger type of Christian, which is why our, our church doesn't baptize anyone who, who hasn't been saved, or at least made a profession of faith. The best we can tell that they're saved. And we, we encourage people not to take the Lord's Supper who are not saved as well. We... we believe that the scriptures call for church membership and that's that's uh begins with salvation and baptism number three they visibly mark out the church from the world so when you sit and watch the lord's supper for example you're seeing a snapshot hopefully of what is the true church in this location that's that's part of the purpose of it this is something that that the believers back in the 1600s were, were saying in the Westminster Confession. And then fourth, <coughs> they, they engage us in service to God in Christ according to His Word. Which is one reason why many churches renew their covenant before they take the Lord's Supper. That is, they, they actually just recite the Lord's Supper. I, I don't have a copy here, but the, um, inside the back of your hymn book, it has our church covenant and what some churches do. And I don't think this is a terrible idea and one we might want to consider doing ourselves. Just remind ourselves what we do, how we have agreed to live, right? How is it that we've agreed to live with one another? All right, so the rest of our time we're going to take them one at a time. That was kind of an overview, a um, little bit of history of, of how they've, um, how we come to understand them according to the scriptures and then church history as well. Any questions so far? All right.
let's say that I become a Christian, but I'm never baptized. I can still go to heaven, right? Any examples in Scripture? Someone following this? Okay, thief on the cross. Church wasn't fully established, but that's the one I often think of as well. Right? He he dies um, shortly after coming to salvation in Jesus Christ and doesn't um, isn't able to get immersed in water. Right? So, um, so then, what harm is done as a result of not being baptized? I mean, if a person can be saved without being baptized and make their way to heaven then why do this? Why not just do this? Why, why do the baptism if the salvation is what gets us to heaven? Any ideas? Sandra? Okay. Good. So it's... a. Uh, it's an identification, as we've been talking about already. It's, a, it's saying, I am identifying myself with Jesus. That Jesus is my, my Lord, my Savior, and I'm identifying with Him publicly. Any other ideas? Why? What's the harm in not being baptized? Okay, so that's so you're saying that's actually a positive, right? That's it actually it, it it's it helps to as I've been uh, calling it draw the lines of distinction between who's in and who's out, rather than this kind of well, this person this person made a profession of faith, but they never um, decided to to make an identification with Christ through public baptism. Um, so so we miss out if we say what's the harm in, in not being baptized and we miss out on this opportunity to publicly pro- proclaim that I am a Jesus follower uh, any other ideas Mike right right so it's 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 a disobedience to a direct command any anywhere you can think of that it, that we are commanded to be baptized or at least it's implied that we should be baptized I gave you one earlier Max Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But but how about Jesus' great commission? Right? What is the job of the church? Now, I say it's implied because it's not a direct command to the individual that when you get saved, you need to be baptized. But it's a command of the church that when you go, you need to be making disciples and baptizing them. That's one of the things that the church is expected to do of those who have been saved. So when we don't get baptized, what we're saying is, I'm not I'm not willing to... Obey what Christ has commanded me to do. Any other ideas? What kind of... Oh, go ahead. That's not what every church. That's not how every church practices, but that's the way we, we, um, we instruct our church to do. Because, um, in, in fact, in our statement of faith, as I just read earlier, on the front page there, the baptism is a prerequisite to church relationship, and it's a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. So that's, but, but there are churches that just allow anybody who claims to be a Christian. So 
and they could be a Christian, I'm not saying that they're not, but let's say there's a person who's a Christian that hasn't been baptized and they still want to take the Lord's Supper. There's lots of churches that, that still allow that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that would be a problem because we're, again, that's about drawing the lines of distinction. Let, let me, let's think about it from our perspective. So we're already members of the church, let's say. What kind of benefit do we get from someone else being baptized? Is there any benefit to, for us? Well, if they be baptized, they can join the church. What about for us as a congregation? As we're watching someone be baptized, what benefit is that to us? Yeah. Lots of answers. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. So it's a reminder. There's joy. There's there's fellowship, right? Because we, there's a reminder of what what um, Christ did for us, and and it's also a reminder of the work that God's done in them, right? That He has bought, brought them out of spiritual darkness and into spiritual light, out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of His beloved. Son, and so we miss out on that when we say, um, let, let's say I, as a Christian who's not baptized, say, I, you know, I just don't see the benefit in doing that. See, we 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 take away something that could be a blessing to the rest of the church. Now, presumably, an understanding of those benefits should inform how we do baptism as a church. Um, and as I mentioned, there are um, other churches that that don't necessarily. <coughs> excuse me, see baptism is that important. And so there's all sorts of um, strange ways that baptism is carried out. There are um, churches who don't require baptism for membership, as we've mentioned, that they're basically saying that obedience to Christ is optional, right? Jesus says, you know, you need to be baptized. The, the apostles made that pattern clear. And then we as a church are saying, well, you can still become a member of our church even though you're not baptized. And we're, we're basically saying that obedience is not that important. Other churches make it less of a testimony of what God has done. Maybe other people baptize without having any connection to a church, right? Like, it doesn't really matter uh, who does the baptism. You just need to be baptized. It's some kind of um, spiritual infusion that you receive so that um, it can be done anywhere, anytime, by any person, whether or not it's part of a church. Um, and so, so there's lots of dangers that, that um, we can bring into it as a church as to how we actually express or perform this ordinance. All right, who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? You notice that this entire discussion that we've had assumes that that baptism is only for believers, but I hope you recognize that this has been debated over hundreds of years. So why would we believe that baptism is only for believers? We call it believer's baptism. Well, we could talk about that for, for I'm sure, weeks, but, but let me give a brief summary of the argument. First, an argument for infant baptism. We need to start out by saying that the, the argument for infant baptism on the other side of the bait the, the debate, and you may be surprised by this, is actually not a terrible argument. Now, we obviously disagree with it. We're going to get to that. But but they have some good reasons for believing what they believe. And and it never does any good for us to just say, well, we know that that's wrong because it's wrong. right? We, we need to know why it's wrong. What's, what's so bad about infant baptism? 
Now, most people alive today who baptize their babies do so because they think that baptism saves the baby, right? They saves them from original sin. Which group am I talking about? The Roman Catholics, right? So they don't believe in salvation by faith alone. That's not what I'm talking about here. Okay, the argument that they have is is terrible. It doesn't save infants. Um, instead, what I want to deal with is those who agree with us on the gospel that we can only be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that not of our works so that none of us can boast. So people who agree with us, like Evangelical Presbyterians and Anglicans, Church of England, the conservative ones, and yet they still baptize their infants. This is what is called paedo-baptists. Paedo meaning infant. Okay, paedo-baptists. So their argument is that, that baptism is the new covenant continuation of the sign and seal of circumcision. So really their whole understanding of infant baptism comes from what I would say is a bad hermeneutic. Now, we're going to get to how to study the Bible, and I'll use that word a little bit more frequently then. But basically, it just means how to interpret the Bible. And what they've done is they've, they've basically determined that the Old Testament Israel is the New Testament what? Church. So everything that you see in the Old Testament for promises and expectations and commands, those get carried over into the to the New Testament with the church. So for the Old Testament, in order for a person to enter into a covenant community, at least a male, had to be circumcised, right? And so that was a seal. It was a covenant. It said that this person now has been adopted into our community. And if you didn't do that, you were saying, listen, I'm not, I don't want to identify myself with this group of people, with the Jews, right? So in the New Testament, what they see is that this translates, because they have this bad understanding, they, they don't understand that, that God has worked through dispensations or eras and that he's changed how he deals with people through time, as we understand, and that they see that, that Old Testament Israel is the church. And so now this, this new way that people are brought into the covenant community, the church, just like it was for Israel, circumcision, for the church, it's what? baptism and when does circumcision take place typically right when they're young and so what happens in the new testament with the church so so for them they are seeing this as a way to be obedient to christ in their minds that's what it is now we actually think that they're being disobedient because the very word baptism means what anybody know the word baptism comes from a greek word baptismo and it means to immerse. So to baptize, to baptize, they don't immerse their infants, by the way. That's part of the problem. But, but the other problem is that, that we believe that baptism throughout the New Testament has always been following salvation. That there's no indication of any infants being um, baptized in the New Testament. And there also is no indication of anyone being baptized that wasn't first saved. So let me move to our argument for believers only baptism and then um Okay, go ahead. Right, that's not <laughs> that's the difference between them. That's the difference between them and Catholics. So for Catholics 
We baptize them because they're, they're having their original sin removed. That's what baptism does. It's actually a washing or a cleansing. That's the Catholic. But for Lutherans, at least evangelical Lutherans and Presbyterians, they're saying you're welcome into the covenant community. That doesn't mean you're saved, but now you're technically a member of our church. And what we expect is that the Lord will um, cause you to come to salvation at some time. So they still believe that a person has to be they still have to repent and believe at some point, even if they've already been baptized as an infant. No, no. I mean, there might be some liberal Lutherans. Well, there, again, there might be some that believe that. Just like there's all sorts of different um, uh, swatches of Baptists. You know, you have some that just believe some really crazy things. And, and then you have some or that are on the other side that bring, believe some other crazy things. The same thing is true in every denomination, that there's a huge, broad uh, stripe of different kinds of Lutherans. What I'm talking about here are the conservative Lutherans that would believe that salvation only comes by repentance, right, by faith and repentance. Well, I think that they're living in obedience. I, I think they're living in disobedience, excuse me. Yeah, I, I would say that a person can be saved in a Lutheran church, in a Presbyterian church, in a Church of England. I mean, they could even even be saved in a Roman Catholic church, but they're living, they're living in disobedience, and they're they're not really living according to what the Scriptures command us to do. So that's why we would not associate with those types of churches, because we think that they're they're defying the Scriptures. Now they're going to come back with this argument and say, "Well, wait a second, we're we're basically just Old Testament Israel." We're, we're coming into the covenant community. We still expect people to, to be saved, and, and, uh, but they don't have another baptism after that. So, again, they, the person's not biblically baptized. Um, now, what I'm talking about is for kids that have already grown up in the church, typically, because any of these other <coughs> excuse me, evangelical, um, that is, people who believe the same about the gospel as we, uh, any of these other types of churches like that, they are any if if an adult came to Christ under a Presbyterian church, then they would still baptize them following their conversion. Now, baptize probably baptize not a good word because they actually just sprinkle them. Um, but the point is is that there's there's um so they that that but that would be consistent with again their understanding of Old Testament Israel, right? Old Testament Israel, if you you were um if you wanted to be if you wanted to come into a right relationship with the God of Israel. As an adult, then you would have to be circumcised as an adult, right? So that's where they'd say, well, you still need to be baptized following your conversion as an adult. But for infants, we think that you need to kind of make this marker seal at the very beginning. Let me um, move on to our argument for why we believe in believers-only baptism and by immersion. Um, (coughs) A few statements. A few statements here. Uh, first, when the New Testament describes what baptism de- depicts, you see that number one, it describes new life in Christ. So remember we were in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, we are raised to newness of life. And so the assumption is that the person being baptized has been changed. They have been regenerated, and the picture of that is in baptism. <coughs> Second, <coughs> excuse me. Second statement is, when the New Testament parallels baptism and circumcision, it parallels, parallels baptism with the Old Testament covenant 
not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, and here's the best um, proof text, maybe maybe a way to say it, for a person who believes in paedo-baptism. Colossians 2. Okay, so what, what Paul's going to do here is he's saying the, the connection between baptism and Old Testament Israel is not with circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart. And so that actually serves to support what we're saying, which is that baptism is a picture of our salvation, our circumcision of the heart. Would someone read verses 11 and 12? So the continuity between circumcision and baptism is not between circumcision of the flesh, right? See the first line there in verse 11? You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ actually performs this kind of circumcision on us in that he removes from us this body of flesh. And so in that way, that's where baptism is connected. That's why in the next verse it says, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. So it's not a connection between um, entering into a covenant community, although we do believe that baptism does bring a person into the covenant community of the church. But 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 it is primarily about a representation of of our relationship with Christ. Thirdly, there are no clear examples of infant baptism in the New Testament. I mentioned this briefly, but but often the argument that's used by infant or pedo baptists is they go to you know um, the Philippian jailer whose whole house was baptized, like him and his household. But if you look in the verse before that, it says that his whole household was saved, right? That they all believed. They heard the word and they were saved. And so that's not really a good um, argument to say, well, there are some children that are baptized in the scriptures. There are no there are no infants that are baptized in the scriptures. No clear case of an infant being baptized. Now, a child can certainly be baptized and should be, um, but not an infant. And I say should be if they're saved, right? Um, all right, number four. There's no indication of infant baptism in the early church. There's no record of it. There are many references in the early church to believers' baptism, but it wasn't until the 3rd century <coughs> that Tertullian um, actually argued... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the 3rd century till Cyprian actually argued for infant baptism. But, but prior to that, Tertullian was arguing against it. He was saying this should not be the case. And so if infant baptism was a part of the early church, we would expect to see it in the first couple of centuries of the church's um, establishment, right? And yet we don't. And so again, for for those reasons, primarily scriptural ones, we believe that that infants should not be baptized. All right. Any questions? Yes, Sandra.
Yeah, uh, but but you can't have a baptism without salvation, right? Yeah. So yeah, anybody who's saved should be baptized, absolutely. But but what I'm saying is that that command there is for the church. It's not for the individual. So it doesn't say, Jacob, you be saved and be baptized. Jesus doesn't say that in Matthew 28. Instead, he says to the church, he says, you church, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. Actually, he says baptizing them. He's expecting it to happen. So that's why I say it's an implication. It's not a direct command to the individual. The, the direct command that we have is from Peter in Acts 2 where he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And if we understand that rightly, then we should see that as, as a direct command to us to be saved and be baptized. All right, I need to move. Oh, go ahead. Well, we're not gonna. We can't force baptism on anyone. So I would I would agree with that kind of statement. I mean, the Lord has to be the one who who leads that person to be baptized. We can't we can't have um, forced baptism. Um, <laughs> that would be interesting. I, I wonder if there are any churches that do that. All right, we need to move to the Lord's Supper. Did you have something? Go ahead. Well, <coughs> again, um, it's hard to know a person's heart, but but yeah, I mean, if we if a person understands what baptism is, and they recognize that it is a commandment and expectation from the Lord, then then they should want to be baptized. All right, let's move on to uh, the Lord's Supper briefly. Um, what is the Lord's Supper? It's a uh, a memorial, that's why we have on the front of our table there, do this in remembrance of me, a quotation from Jesus where he says, you know, this is this is about <coughs> remembering what I have done for you. Um, let's see. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to... Well, let's, let's do it. 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to th- see three aspects of the Lord's Supper here in this text, which is the one that I most often quote from during the Lord's Supper, um, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. (coughs) For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord <coughs> in an unworthy ma- manner excuse me, <coughs> shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Those three aspects to this um, Lord's Supper is grounded in the past, what Christ has done, in the present, what we're supposed to do with regard to it, and in the future, what we are proclaiming and expecting in the Lord's Supper. So first, the past. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. Notice verse 24 again. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the Roman Catholics view the church, this Lord's Supper as a representing of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, it, it's a mass 
right? Where they're re-sacrificing Christ every time they take the bread (coughs) and the cup. The bread actually, in their mind, becomes the body of Christ and the blood, uh, the, the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. We're not doing that. We're remembering. And I try to make that clear because I recognize where, you know, we have, might have a number of people who are coming from various backgrounds, but we don't want to think that we are um, doing Mass when we take the Lord's Supper. We're simply remembering what Christ has done. And we need to do this because um, uh, as we do this, we, we are reminded of what Christ has sacrificed on our behalf and and this is something critical that we cannot we cannot miss one of the reasons our statement of faith says that we should and i didn't put this in your handout but but we should uh celebrate it at least once a month or as often as the pastor um decides all right secondly it's about the present it's it's not just simply looking at the past we're not simply uh history dwellers we're also reminded of what christ is doing now and so when we take the supper um, we, we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith and to see if we're in a good relationship with God and with one another. And um, so that's why Paul says, you know, in verse 29, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly, if he doesn't discern properly, that's the word there, judge, discern, that, that we drink judgment on ourselves. And so this is no laughing matter to take the Lord's Supper. This is not something that we just do flippantly or hurriedly, it's, it's um, that we recognize that this is a serious and solemn emblem of what Christ has done for us and the reminder of, of how we need to be united together as one body. And then thirdly, it is um, there's a future tense in Paul's teaching as well. Verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Until He comes. And so when we take the Lord's Supper... This is actually an anticipation of His final coming, isn't it? It's a dress rehearsal for that final supper which we'll have with Christ. And so um, there should be a time of sobriety in the sense that we examine ourselves and, and, we, we, don't be, and we shouldn't be flippant. But I, I hope our, our number one emotion during the Lord's Supper is not one of, of guilt and shame. Um, it should be joy because it's actually pointing forward to something that's going to happen, which is where we meet with Christ and where we eat with Him. And um, that's something that we, we do. And as, as, we eat, as we take the Lord's Supper, it's one of the things that we remind ourselves about, that, that this is forward-pointing future Messianic banquet. All right, so what does the Lord's Supper accomplish? On the back of your handout, if someone was a Christian but never took the Lord's Supper, what would he be missing? Missing? And here are a number of things that are beneficial for us to take the Lord's Supper. This is not exhaustive, but but here's a number of ways that that we experience God's goodness as we take the Lord's Supper. First, it gives us an opportunity to regularly regularly examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith and to see if we're in a good relationship, good standing with the body of believers. Secondly, it's a regular opportunity to check our relationships in the church, reconciliation, We should be willing to reconcile broken relationships before coming to the table, um, which I think is what Paul has in mind when he says, you know, make sure that you judge yourselves properly, verse 29, that that you make sure that you have proper um, standing with your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Third, it's a reminder of our forgiveness. 
that every time we do this, we're reminded again of something that's happened 2,000 years ago, that Jesus died for our sins, and we're remembering that he did that for us. Fourth, it's a reminder of the passing nature of the physical and eternal nature, uh, the passing nature of the physical and the eternal nature of the spiritual. And so as we eat the bread, we we remember that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's something more important to us than physical food. And it is this remembrance of um, something that, that, that takes us, it's kind of a bridge between the present and the eternal, the Lord's Supper is. That we proclaim the Lord's death, something that's going to carry on into eternity. Fifth, it's a picture of heaven. Um, we can look around during the Lord's Supper and get a glimpse or a hint of what heaven will be like. See other people who are Jesus followers, who love him and have committed themselves to him. Um, sixth, it's a warning of judgment on those who don't partake. Um, that is, say we have someone who's been excommunioned, excommunicated from the church, um, someone who's been disciplined. And um, so it's a warning to them. You know, listen, you, you are not able to take the Lord's Supper with us. And for them, it should be uh, something that was meant to be a hint of heaven to show what a great joy it is to fellowship with these other believers actually come, becomes for them a hint of hell. They're on the outside looking in. And uh, that's an important and remarkable picture. And then last, uh, it's a reminder of, of the unity that we have as a congregation. It's not merely because uh, we don't pursue unity just because it, it gives less problems. Um, or makes church more enjoyable. It, it actually pictures what Christ is and what he expects from us. That's what he prayed for in John 17. I pray that you, or that they, talking about the disciples, that they would be one as we are one. He's talking about him and his Father. The same kind of unity that we have in the Godhead, Jesus is saying to his Father, is the kind of, the, of unity I'm praying for with my followers. And so... Um, it pictures Christ in that way as we are unified um, people who, who have committed themselves to Christ. Which is why, again, why it's so important that we baptize only believers and only allow believers to take the Lord's Supper. All right. Um, any questions, comments? All right. I know there's a lot there and um, a lot to think about but I would encourage you to do that. Uh, let's pray. I'll be, be dismissed. Father, thank you for the solemn emblems that we have in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Thank you for showing us the importance of those things, and we pray that you'd help us to, to um, take them seriously as we watch them and participate in them. And we pray that, that you would draw more people into the fold, people who already... Um, have been chosen by you who who will hear the master's voice and follow him and uh, we pray that they too would be baptized and and added to the church we pray in jesus name amen